Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What's up, everybody? It's Joel LaPuma. You're listening to the Complex Sneakers Podcast. As always, I am with my guy, Mr. Matt Welty. Here we are. And, of course, my man flexing right now, Brendan Dunn. I'm trying to get the energy going, Joe. I saw you hit the, the, the Millie Rock sturdy right before we started recording. Sometimes this guy, right before we hit record, he gets his energy up because sometimes we have to pick up. We need for, it. We need to pick up the energy for the right square next to me sometimes. <laughs> we need but, it right now. Here's the thing, Joe. It's been such a long week. There's so much going on. We're recording a bunch yes. of different stuff, writing a bunch of different stuff. They're telling me it's Tuesday right now. I feel like it's Thursday or Thursday or something. For real. But we are very excited for our guests, so we need the energy. Wealthy, how Absolutely. do you feel? Feel great, man. So what what hoodie is that, Wealthy? I feel like I don't see you in hoodies that I know this that is often. rare. Yeah, it looks good. I have a sneakers and stuff hoodie on. Shout okay. out Peter and Eric. Shout to SNS. Peter and Eric came through with the gift package. I love that. You know, the, a great moment in influence is when Brendan Dunn had the SNS North Face fleece. It was a blue tie dye. Mm-hmm. I saw it on FSR. Mm-hmm. And then I and then I bought it for resale. So the influence, thank you for that, Joe. I yep. appreciate the honesty. And again, I appreciate you just went straight to StockX. I said, listen, Peter and Eric could probably help you out with that. Johan could help us out with that. Somebody could, we, somebody could make that happen. But you paid the cost to the game, and I love that. Exactly. You don't have you know some. You don't have to put the ask in every time, even though. Um, those new 992s, though. <laughs> those new 992s <laughs> that we were talking about off air. The Giannis Bendimas. I don't, think I'm gonna put put ask, I don't think I'm going to put the ask in. From one Joe to another? But, it, but if you're listening to, what are they, predominantly white? They're white and black. I broke the white seal on sneaker shopping. It's official. With, a with big, Fabulous. A big step. And I really love that. It was a big step, and I really love that people listened to the podcast because people were like, oh, we heard him on the podcast. Welty brought it up that I was having a mini meltdown, but I think we got through it. So we're here for another week. I'm so glad for that. I have to say... I did put the ask in, and somebody did help me out with a pair of New Balances, and they did come in the mail right before we recorded this. What are they? May I do a brief unboxing? Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Now this is this is not for me, you know. Um, you hear you hear the wow. That sounds that sounded like a Harley. Curtain. That sound like a Harley Davidson. Oh, I know. I, 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 I know what these are. I, I know what this shoe is. Go ahead. I, I know what this shoe is. This is Go a ahead. very Soho sneaker right now. This is yo. Uh, I saw. I told you about this. This shoe is everywhere down there. It is right everywhere. Now. I'm a New has Balance to be. 550. This is for yes. her, though. How good does it feel oh. when you buy a pair of shoes and it's for somebody else? You get the Feels satisfaction good. of getting the shoe. You don't have to spend your own money and you get to help somebody out. These are for her. I like that. White and gray, white and green. Suspense the suspense is killing me. Build a little the bit. suspense is killing me. And I'm not going to show the business card where they came from because we don't need to say who helped me out on this one. But 
He knows, or they know who they are, and they are appreciated. We're protecting every single source. Still haven't been in the store. Still haven't been in I'm Alien on Door, but I, I got the shoes, and damn it, that's what matters. He's unboxing. We promised that he will unbox it this episode, but there they are. <laughs> I'm getting them, man. The red they are. Hair. White and red. Oh, uh, so something we needed to talk about that we talked about in Slack that was... Uh, there it is. That I would say was probably one of the, one of the few, uh, few highlights of last week. Last week, this week, last week. I don't. Oh, I, don't, I know. I don't. I don't even know what the time is. But it's track brought, of time, man. A story brought, brought total excitement to my life is when. What is this story? Uh, I know it. Tell me. I had said something to Mike DiStefano. Yes, I know. Um, shout out, and I was like, "What fit were you wearing when this song was playing?" And it was Lil Wayne and Drake right above it. Great song. And, and Joe said, "Gold oh Bar Sundays." With Gold Ronnie Bar Fye. Sundays. It's true. You were, oh you were, you were going off. This is a fucking and, story. And, um, I cannot believe the history this man has. <laughs> this is and yeah. humbly, quietly. This, yeah, you guys were really surprised. Go ahead, well, so, go. So, and you were talking about what fit were you wearing, and someone had mentioned probably had a Goodwood chain on, and Joe LaPuma goes, "You know, I designed that, right?" Yeah, that's the true. Wooden Jesus piece. That's true. You didn't that's even true. put that on the CV. That's not even on your LinkedIn, man. No, you were that's just true. You on this guys one? were, you guys were very surprised by that. Me and. Chris Lee, C to the JL. Uh-huh. He was working with Goodwood, and I was one like, JL you know, meets another JL. It's remember C to the JL? Do you guys remember him? You know what? I saw that name online a lot on the blogs back then, but I didn't know him. And you mentioned him much at uh, Sneaker Friends. Yes, and I missed that guy. So anyway, he was working with Goodwood, and I was like, you know, you should do, you should do like a takeoff of the Jesus piece, and. It was a time where, like, they, obviously they were super popular, and yeah. no one, no one could afford them. So we did the the black Jesus piece, which I think Kanye wore the real one, and then mm-hmm. it blew up. And it's crazy because I think they made a lot of money off of that design. And we also, know they made a lot of money. Yeah, right there. So they, the other thing is, like, I remember going to my mall, my my mall at the hometown South Shore Mall, and like seeing kiosks with the Middle Jesus the piece, not shit. Goodwood, but Takeoff. The other thing is. That Goodwood, that really popped Goodwood off. If I and they owe it all co- to you. I'm not going to say that, but if I remember correctly, one of Ronnie's Gel Light 3s was in a Goodwood packaging. Yes. I think the, the, the Leatherbacks, the Jesus, the Goodwood Jesus piece, yeah. I remember <sighs> so. they used to just come to 23rd Street, and it would be like just in plastic bags, and I had the blue one, the red office. one, the black one. Yeah, and I got it engraved, but yeah, that was a special you got, time. You got a small, you got a small sum, and you go, "I just got whatever color I wanted." Yeah, that's <laughs> it. You know, listen, the biz- I wasn't that business savvy back in the day. Okay, I do want to shout out Mike DeStefano because, well, you mentioned that he was a jumping off point for the story, and I did see him in Soho last weekend, and he was one of the many, one of the throngs, one of the thousands of people wearing the New Balance five fifties. Like I said, that's become the official shoe of downtown very quick. I was hanging out in that area. I was almost tempted to go to Kith Treats. I gotta I gotta admit I've never been to Kith Treats, you guys. How good is that stuff? Joe, I know you have something oh, on the menu. You're go. super duper biased. It's good. I saw no line. Listen, the JLP ice cream, Ronnie hits Your us up a signature? bunch a bunch of our friends. Yeah and, and he did it so nonchalantly. He was like if you could put an ice cream together with these ingredients, what would it do? So people it, we were in a group text just Saying the ingredients, we didn't really know what it was. Sure enough, they end up with treats, and we, you have your own ice cream, which honestly is pretty cool. Like, there's one in Miami. People still like, you know, say, "Oh, I had the JLP." Is it Do the best think... flavor? Is it the best recipe? I don't know. But always so humble. I always like look at that and always and always think that 
it's kind of like that uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yo, episode. the sandwich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know it. Oh, it's a great. He, who, do, who does he try to tra- uh, trade the sandwiches with? I thought it was Ted Danson, right? Yeah, Ted Danson, and he's in in Larry's sandwiches like whitefish, sa- sable, and whitefish, and yes. capers, and <laughs> and even his dad doesn't want to eat the sandwich, and he's trying to trade with Ted Danson. And he's trying to yes. describe his sandwich to everyone, and nobody wants it. I didn't know if that was the case with you, Joe. And well, the- it's not that bad. It's what I, it's it's all stuff I really like. You know, Captain Crunch, Cookie Crisp, Coconut Flakes, Twix, and I think vanilla ice cream. I need to slide through there. When there's no line, or they need to help me skip the line, because you know Levain is right across the street right now. That's tough competition. They need to do a collab. I need that, Ronnie. Set that up with those big ass gooey cookies. Joe, do you think someone like Wealthy is, or me even, anywhere close to getting something on that menu, like a Wealthy ice cream flavor? Um, what would you get? What would I don't you even get know if Wealthy eats ice cream right now. He always has ice cream so. takes He's in so the slack. fit, and you, you know, you have what the vegan menu. Maybe what would you get? What, what, <laughs> what kind of dessert? What kind of dessert would you get? I'm sure Ronnie could do something for me. But you may see outside of Kith right now the Kith BMW, and inside Kith, I believe you'll see the Complex Sneaker of the Yearbook. Very Isn't it hitting Kith? Isn't it hitting? Very Kith? important. I better see stacks of those in there. And October 20th, you know, I know we talked about it last week, but today, as we record this, October 20th, the book is out. Go get that. It's out. It's heading toward the top of the charts from what I hear. Welty, what do you think? I think so. Uh, Had to record some videos for some promo that we're going to be putting out uh, this week, so maybe you'll see our faces talking about the book a little bit, right? I did too. How did you? How did that recording go? Uh, I had like um, I had the whole. I yeah, had, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. There, I had like the little mini tripod, and I had. Uh, I may or may not have had the little, the little light, the little like. Um, what's the? You the had ring, the ring light. The ring light. Yeah. Joe, yeah. I got the ring light screaming right now. That's why the skin looks so elegant. Oh, I would. I didn't know you used the ring light. Okay. Okay. Come on, man. I'm an influencer. Yeah, drop the, I thought I was going to ask you to drop the skincare routine, but it's the ring light, okay? <laughs> we can do Either that, way. too. Either way. <laughs> we, can, <laughs> we, can do, we can make a whole day of it. We could go to Kith Treats. We could go to Malin and Goats. We could hit Kiehl's for a couple yeah, samples, yep. slide out of there with some travel size little potions and elixirs, things like that, things of that nature, a tincture or two. Any sneak, big sneaker news this week? I think we're going to get into some of the big sneaker news that we didn't touch on. Brendan, Dun- Brendan Dunn got people mad. On the internet. Why? What? What do you do now? What did he do now? Why are people mad at me? Because you, uh, you broke or you leaked the Bad Bunny Exodus. I don't think there's people mad on the internet. People mad in the industry. Wait a minute! I thought that was a reported story. I mean, it is reported, but we broke the story. You know yeah. what I mean? So people got to deal with it. This is what we do. All right, guys. Well, listen. It's a night shoot. We are all in different places as usual, but I'm in an undisclosed location this time. But I'm excited to introduce our guest. Let's get to it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In 2006, a sneaker would disrupt the market more than any collab, Jordan, or hyped release of that time. But it didn't come from one of the major brands dominating the space. It came from a graphic designer who had a passion for sneakers and had even more passion for making a statement. The shoe itself, dubbed the Ari Mental 10, was a takeoff of Nike's iconic Air Force One, packaged in an equally as iconic design scheme of a pack of Newport cigarettes. The bootleg design had kids lining up outside of clientele on June 17th of 2006 for their chance to score one of the 252 pairs of sneakers that were released, another rarity for an indie sneaker drop. The sneaker had a bunch of Easter eggs throughout the upper that the designer intended to activate the customers he was selling to. Messages like, general warning, get off the brand wagon, and this sneaker is dedicated to the two brands who have taken the most and given the least. A clear message to Nike and Newport. Kids lined up that morning and the sneakers quickly sold out that day, but the lasting impact of the disruption of the sneaker would live on. Tonight, it seems there's no one better to discuss the current state of sneaker culture as it relates to bootlegs than our guest, Ari Sal Foreman. Welcome to the Complex Sneakers Podcast, Ari. Thank you, sir. That is an incredible intro. It's actually the most accurate one that I've had. Wow, awesome. Really? Um, not that there's been this giant plethora of them, but I, you know, I, <laughs> I try to support small podcasts and little interviews, and it really... Is pretty accurate because generally it's the facts, it's sort of like folklore. A lot of the actual truth has not been clear. So I appreciate that. Thank you. No doubt. We're happy hopefully. to separate the truth from the myth on here. Yes. That's exactly what hey. we need to do, Ari. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Ari, we want to talk, like we said, about your menthol sneakers and the current state of shoes that are kind of related in that same oeuvre if I can use a, a French word, but I want to go way back in, in your history and learn when you first really cared about sneakers growing up. It's a, uh, I'll try to keep it simple, uh, which I, no way. I have a hard, all the time in the world. <laughs> I, I have a hard time doing that. I, I am a talker, but uh, to just make it short, it was the seventies and it was with uh, Van Doren before it was called Vans. It was Van Doren. And um, I, I think prior to that, I, I don't think I owned any Nikes. I think I had a pair of Adidas or the fake Adidas that were being made by Sears. They were called Winners, and they they might have been made by Adidas. I don't. I forget. Somebody was making them. It was like Converse. I think actually was making them for Sears, but I didn't have any consciousness there. And it wasn't until I discovered the Dogtown Crew. And I, I'm originally from LA, even though I've been on the East Coast almost my whole life. Um, and these, I just noticed dudes wearing Vans. And so I, I, I equated that with, with, you know, this look of being the right skateboarder at however old I was, seven or something, 1978 or something. Um, and I asked about it, and I, I think my father packed me up in his VW van, and we went to the valley where the Van Doren stores were. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing was is you couldn't just get them in regular stores, and you had to go to a branded van store called Van Doren. 
and it, it wasn't like hip or anything. It was just rough. It was like a place with racks of shoes on it. And it was, you know, kind of clean. And he'd walk up to the counter. And if you didn't want anything on the wall, and this is the key thing that really got me interested in sneakers is you could customize them. This is like 1978 or so. And I said, well, what, you know, and they, they showed me a, a sort of like a line drawing on a piece of paper. And they said, this is the model you want. I chose the slip on or something. And they had rings full of material. And it was like, you know, anything from the cliche checker, checkerboard mm-hmm. to Hawaiian prints to just basic solid classic Vans colors. And you could, they would then take the, the they had a, the, the drawing, which had two sneakers and they would assign the, the, the materials and colors you wanted to the shoe. And then uh, the, the, the really unique thing was, is that unlike now fast forward to Nike ID and all this sort of customization that you can do now, um, you did, they didn't have to match. And so I made mismatch. You could do whatever I, you want. Yeah. Whatever you wanted. So I think the first pair I did was something like blue and gold or something. And like, you know, like Bruins colors or something. UCLA, I don't know what it was. I forget. And it was like blue, gold, blue, and then gold, blue, gold. Mm. So it was like the toe, the mid, you know, the heel, everything was different. And the power of that customization to me was incredible. And then when they showed up, they basically would call you like a week or two later. They'd call your house and you'd come down because the factory was right down the road. So they were all made in USA. Yeah. And you would get, you would get them. And you, you, it was one of one because you customize it your way. And even though there was probably people that had done it, you weren't ever going to run into them. And people noticed that and they complimented it. And I started to buy things that reflected that same kind of idea of trying to be unique. And that was it for me. Sneakers were a love affair. And I didn't come from sports. And that's mm-hmm. sort of the difference between me and most sneaker heads is that a lot of the dudes, especially, you know, guys of your caliber where you guys are, you know, entrenched in it. Most of you guys are sports guys. I didn't grow up with sports. There's no sports in my house. So skateboarding was just lifestyle of the streets out there. And so for me, it was always about style. It was never anything other. I could, I didn't know who that athlete was. that was endorsing it. I didn't even know who Chuck Taylor was. Like I had no clue. So, so it was a very different approach and that's how, you know, it really happened for me was that, idea of fashion style and having being unique in that in that space and you know you were a graphic designer would you say style but also design as well when it came yeah, to sneakers? Absolutely. that's fair that's absolutely fair because the even though i was a skater uh i i, I didn't wear the skate uh what i guess they call it the old school now yeah vans old, i think vans it was a skate school. high and a skate low, low because mm-hmm. that it wasn't old school then. It was new school. So we, right. it, it wasn't was called school. an old school. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was school. And I don't, I, don't, I don't remember what the name was. I think it was a skate low and a skate high, I think. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like it because the, the, you know, it just looked like a bootleg. You know, it looked kind of like a copy, that swoosh thing. Not, not swoosh, it, because we all say that. Just that insignia going across, yeah. to me, just didn't look very interesting. Um, and the quiltedness of it, it, I just didn't like the design. So I always wore... Um, lows and slip-ons, you know, like the, the authentic or mm-hmm. the authentic and what's the other one? It's the same shoe. One just has a collar. Era, era, right? Era. So I know you. I know you went to Philly, but then when you like when you finally came to New York, like where were you going to buy sneakers back then? I, I, listen, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I I was broke. I moved to New York with fifty dollars. 
Wow. Um, we. How old were you? Uh, I was 25. I was just turning 25, and you know, like there's no financial literacy in my family. It's just, it's a, it's a calamity and comedy of errors, you know. It's um, so I, I moved to New York. Um, bro, I owed three months rent in Philly. Wow. And and two months utilities, and I I kind of tried to sublet my apartment to a dominatrix. You know, just to make a little money while I was in New York. You said and, sublet uh, or submit? It didn't listen. <laughs> you know, I know people that know people. And uh, it was just a friend of mine that had gotten into that business because that was her hustle. So, Got it. Um, and I threw her the apartment because, you know, and she never paid me for anything. She didn't really have to, but I was hoping. Um, and so I didn't have any money. And I... I you know, I had whatever, like my boys, I had boys that were boosters, you know, my, most oh, okay. of my friends were graffiti writers. They were skateboarders, graffiti writers, and, you know, other types of criminals, let's say. And uh, I had a lot of boys that were boosters. And one of my young boys, um, you know, one of my, one of the kids I was friends with and kind of mentored or, you know, he, he was a champion booster. And what, he was stores? Always, <laughs> what stores and what brands though? He was boosting. It was always Nike. Okay. It was always Nike. Um, at that point, it was uh, Air Maxes and things like that. The uh, ACGs still. Okay. Um, and it was you know like Moabs and and nineties uh, and ones and ninety fives had just hit. That was the year they hit, and they were kind of bizarre. But my 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 boy was was he was he took sympathy on me that I you know I wasn't doing the crime that they were doing, hmm. and he would just throw he would wear things for a few times and he would give them to me. So I would wear them into the fucking ground. And Am I allowed to curse on this uh, podcast? Yeah, of course. And this was okay. like Air Maxes in big jeans and then reselling them, stuff like that. Going to stores and going through inventory, yeah. stealing, stealing Air Maxes, putting them in the big jeans. You know, I worked at King's Plaza for a while, yeah. so boosting. Yeah, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah boosting was a, was a big thing. But um, so that's what it was, you know, the big hoodies and big things like yeah. that, and then bringing them but back what, to the block. They would, exactly. And they would go and boost stacks of jeans because wow. jeans, you could fit them into things. And then uh, at one point, the hustle was Gap. The Gap had um, the Gap had a policy which was sort of like no receipt return type of a thing, and that was their. It was smart. It was really good on their part, but the boosters took advantage of it. So my boys would steal stacks of things, and then they'd return them. They'd get the credit receipts, then they'd sell the credit receipts, and then they'd go and buy sneakers if they couldn't boost. The sneakers were a little hard to boost because the Koreans were really tight with with that. They Philly's so, you know, hood that, you know, most people, they didn't have game for that. There was some sort of like running stores that were naive and you could, but we, anything we had to get, and not to say that I didn't boost here and there, um, I did, uh, we would take the bus to the suburbs because, it, you know, like when they first released the Air Force Ones in 84 or whatever it was, 83, 84 or something, mm-hmm. um, you know, the ones that didn't have the toes and I mean, the holes in the toe box. Yeah. It was right. just like a no solid sweaty leather boot almost. We had to, they sold out in Philly so quick because people didn't buy them in numbers that we would take the bus out to the suburbs to get them. And we couldn't boost from out there, but there were some other stores that we were able to. So, you know, you find ways. But anyways, you know, coming back to your question, when I got to New York, I had nothing. So by the time Nike talk hit and, you know, it was like my boy, you know, uh, Air Rev and them, you know, you, you guys know him well. I mean, of course. Who's, Who's more G in this in this business? Him and AM and those guys. Um, they were just buying things for twenty dollars, thirty dollars, fifty dollars. I I just couldn't afford anything. We had a magazine going. Me and 
you know, Steve Espel Powers. So I, I, at one point, I had a pair of Timberland shoes that I wore for almost a year in Brooklyn with nothing else. I didn't have anything else. And this is when these dudes were already, you know, popping. I just was broke, man. And it wasn't until I started my marketing company that, and that was like about 2001, 2002, that I finally had money and started hitting eBay and hitting stores and digging. But I didn't what really were the care stores the in New York? Because I know you said at, at one point you had so much clout in the sneaker scene in New York where you could go to Nike's customization spots like at uh, Elizabeth Street and you could just walk in yeah. without an appointment. Oh, yeah. That was, it was Because it was anybody that was – if you were a graffiti writer, a skater, a booster, um, you know, somehow involved with hip-hop, it was a small community, right? And so downtown, everybody kind of knew each other. And at some point, everybody was around Supreme. And even though I was a skater, um, I wasn't really an active skater at that point, And I didn't come up in the scene here in New York. I knew writers and boosters and stuff because of the magazine, because I had um, that history of working with the magazine. On the go. Uh, and so, yeah, and that, because of the things that the covers and, the, you know, working with, you know, you know, uh, Wu-Tang and, you know, Bad Boy and Roughhouse and, you know, uh, Def Jam and working with all these different artists, you know, I, I had I had a, a good resume. My pedigree was solid in hip hop going back to the early 80s. So um, knowing people downtown gave me a little bit of I already had some some some, some skin in the game heavy. And that allowed me some privileges. So as this what would then be called sneaker culture started to evolve, I was already there. So I never had to wait in lines or do any of that mess. Um, I was very spoiled and fortunate. And then when, they, when Elizabeth Street started, you know, the Nike ID program in, in test, um, that was, it was great because all the downtown kids, the local like Dominican kids and, you know, Sammy the Jew and all these guys, they all were working there or had access there. So we were just going in there and buying stuff every week. It was great. You know, there was no, you know, Futura and Stash. These were guys I knew from the graffiti writing days, you know, from the 80s up into the, you know, through the 90s. So when these guys had something, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't really a favor for me to ask people at Supreme to save me something or, you know, to ask Hayes or Fuchs to save me something because we had come in the game together. So, You know, you, you mentioned, you know, kind of gloss over, but you have a, you know, a close friendship with Espo and yeah. you worked on the, you worked on the Air Force Two with yeah. him, which was, you know, the first see-through sneaker, which started, a whole yeah. trend of bootleg sneakers on its yeah. own, which is kind of you know ironic in the in the whole the whole uh, yeah. turn of things. But um, what was it like working on that Air Force Two? Because it's become such a legendary sneaker so in, in sneaker culture. <laughs> um, so good. It's uh, I, Espo is a he's a, he's a madman and a genius. And if it wasn't for him, a lot of things in my life wouldn't have happened. Um, he. He was, uh, he's a competitive type of a person. And we had been friends, you know, graffiti writing friends since uh, 85. Because he's and, also from Philly. Yeah, he's from Philly. He's really from Philly. You know, he's born and bred out there. Um, and my family, my entire family, including all three of my siblings are from Philly. I just happened to be the one that was born in California when they packed up the VW van. So I had a very Philly-like culture. It wasn't alien to me because my household was Philly. So uh, when I came to Philly, I took to it very organically even though I was a bit of an outsider. And Steve, I met, I, I moved to Philly in 82. I met him in 85. So it wasn't long before me and him were friends. And 
immediately, Steve is the kind of guy that his creative process, the way that he, you know, his, his ideation works is it's, it's free, it's childlike, but it, it has uh it has a sophistication to it. He, he's, you know, a self-educated kind of a guy where he's, he reads a lot and retains a lot of the information. So he challenges you constantly. And when, when that process came up with Nike, when he did the Deitch, the Jeffrey Deitch uh, uh, show, and that then went to, you know, with um, uh, Todd James, Todd James, or Todd Reese James, whatever you'd like to call it. We know him as Reese, but Todd James and Barry McGee, who writes Twist. Um, we knew we had relationships with them because of the magazine, because it was a graffiti hip hop based magazine. Um, and when they had that show that opened up, that was 1999 and that opened up a whole can of worms. So by 2000, he was having this show. Nike came to him and his terms were, uh, let me do what I want to do. And they loosely agreed to that. And Steve, <laughs> Steve was not a sneaker dude. You know, he, you know, he wore sneakers like anybody wears sneakers. Um, but he knew that me and my boy, Kenny Mees, who is really the guy, he's the guy that used to always hook me up with sneakers. You know, he was a dope booster. Um, and so me and him were just weirdo sneaker enthusiasts who used to talk about new materials and new things. We didn't, we never really were retro guys necessarily. We just kept moving mm-hmm. with the times. So Steve was like, Hey man, you know, there's nobody, there's nobody better than you to, to, to help me out with this because I can do the graphic design stuff for him, but I can, weigh in on what would work and uh the process you know nike is very uptight you know it's not the nike of now which is still very conservative um but they were very uptight and they really weren't keen to the idea they didn't like it um and they said it wouldn't work and we were it was a, a pack with um pharrell and Har- halle berry mm-hmm. yeah the artist and series. halle berry was doing yeah it was the first artist series and uh, Halle Berry was doing that like rift type of a thing. Yes. And Pharrell at this point was in a weird place with Nike. He was already starting to like, he was leading the way of, you know, sort of anarchy away from Nike. You know what's and, crazy? You never see Pharrell in the Pharrell dunks to that point. You never yeah, see no, it. No, no, it's a good point. It's a good point because he saw, he saw how conservative they were. And, and you know, not, there's nobody that does it better than Nike, but it doesn't make them flawless, right? And they're, they're, they're indicative of any corporation that is so successful that they can fail upwards, that they can do all the wrong things and fail and still win and make a profit because they're just that big, that enough people can buy the disaster to make it a success, so to speak, you know? And um, Nike has done so many this groundbreaking things, from, you know, T- Tinker Hatfield and his team and, and, and beyond. Right. That they're really it's hard to tell them like, Hey guys, we have ideas. We have, we've got, we don't don't have two nickels to rub together, but we're telling them what they should be doing within this culture that they feel that they're, that they've created, which is not entirely true. Right. It's almost accidental in some ways. Biden and Kennedy is really responsible for their image. They're responsible for the tech and the tech at this point, we're talking about retro things that are dated. So anyways, secondary. um, Yeah. I mean, if, if they're truly a company about tech, they would discontinue the things that are tech liability, that are sports liabilities at this point. They wouldn't keep retroing things, right? So it's, there's a hypocrisy there. And so we were dealing with them and saying, look, you know, we want to do your iconic shoe. We want the Air Force One. They were like, no, you can't touch it. And Steve was like, okay, then let us do the dunk. No, Pharrell's doing that. And we don't want you to touch that either. So at the time, you know, we were very partial to the Air Force Two. 
which in, you know, only really sneaker enthusiasts have ever appreciated that. It's not, mm-hmm. never really been a trendy thing. So we chose that and they liked that because it had other parts of the construction that gave what they felt more structure and more support to the vinyl, the clear vinyl. And they, they were not into it. They took the clear vinyl, they made the shoe, they sampled it, and Steve was pushing on them and pushing on them. And they just didn't believe it could work. And they kept lining it with liners and like almost like cheesecloth looking back things with like, almost look like patches almost. Hmm. And so it was clear, but we were looking at the shoe deconstructed. We were looking at the insides of the shoe from the outside, like the lining inside and the heel, like that cap that's on the Air Force Two. Right, Um, see-through. And so it didn't translate as see-through. And Steve was like, no, no. And they kept sending samples. We still have one. I think we have the last sample, which is a different color. He has, I should say. Um, And finally, he was just like, look, they were making jellies in the 70s. You can't fucking tell me that you can't figure this out. <laughs> Not like, that hard. You know, your, grandmother, your, grandmother, your grandmother has a couch covered with it, and that can, you know, be, all her grandchildren can jump, jump up and down on it, and at last, figure it out. And they did. They finally figured it out. Um, and, you know, the, the, that allowed Steve to really focus on what he wanted to focus on, is that, you know, guys have $300 shoes and 50-cent socks. Mm-hmm. you know and 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 five dollar three-pack underwear so these guys who who really you know think they're about something really are about nothing and it really challenged nike it challenged this idea of worth and uh, and value to shoes and people's style value um and you know we didn't say all that to nike um and because you know they might have pushed back a bit but eventually it delivered a shoe that was really like wow holy shit this is so ridiculous and so ugly that it's beautiful and revolutionary. Uh, and, and Steve has told the story and maybe you haven't heard it, but when he was wearing the samples, yes. um, you've heard this story and yeah, he yeah, was walking around in them and uh, because they didn't fit him well in the way they creased, they started to make his foot blister and his foot started to bleed and the blood showed through his socks Wow! and you could see it in the shoe. The performance liability, like you said. <laughs> oh, yes. It's just, it was a disaster. But, you know, this is where Nike will never own things as style until just recently, really, that they started to say, okay, we, you know, this is for style's sake. Um, but it's clear to me that by that point, you were super into sneakers, right? I know I've seen some <laughs> videos of your personal collection and you had stuff like salesman samples and things like that that never came out. How did that happen? Um, because when I finally got a couple of dollars in, 2000, 2001, I immediately went to eBay and I was looking around and I was finding old stuff, you know, like Adam and M's and those guys were doing. Um, uh, I was seeing that, but I had been there and done that. And I wasn't, I was nostalgic, but not to just have, I I really wanted to wear certain things. So when I suddenly saw European releases of of 95 that were in different colorways and I, you know, no one, you know, I wasn't deep nerding out into Nike talk like that. You know, that was more, you know, other cats. I would go in and just sort of be voyeuristic and talk once in a while. But when I saw that, that interested me more was new things that were different to stunt, you know, to really show up and, and, and not just have an old pair of patent leather forums or Concord or something show up and really, um, and do something. So I, I, in that process, it turned out that the salesmen were on eBay that Nike salesmen were on there. 
and they weren't really talking about it. And so I, I knew some spots around LA and Jersey and Philly. And when I started communicating with dudes, I found out it was like these dudes from different places. And I just started to make side deals where I said, look, I'll buy your entire inventory, all the wax shit too, just so I can get those two, three pairs that I want. And then I'll just sell the, the garbage. So I started selling like that stuff to like, you know, DJs and rappers or whoever I could. And, uh, um, parallel to Supreme was, uh, James Jebbia and, um, and, uh, uh, um, oh my God, she would kill me if I, if she knew I forgot her name under the pressure. Um, you know, his partner at union, um, yeah. which is, uh, Mary. Fusco. Yeah. yeah. Marianne Fusco. And she, she was just such a sweetheart to me that she would, she was like, Hey, anything to make a dollar. And I would put salesman samples in their glass displays for, for sale. At union. Yeah. At union. And, um, and I had, you know, other outlets. And so I was buying things off eBay. I was buying, I was traveling to California and buying whole boxes of samples from, from guys. And, uh, it was giving me all kinds of, it, it was almost all GR stuff. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And occasionally there'd be something in there that, it, that was intended to be a GR and it was looking like it would become a specialty account thing. And they were, um, or they wouldn't get released. They just didn't get enough orders. And so my collection still has a lot of those samples. And I, what I would do is I'm a, you know, like you behind you, I understand the value of boxes and I like the boxes to me. That's the real design aspect of it. It's important. And I would make, I would go to Foot Locker, get uh, boxes that were being thrown out, grab them, print out my own labels that looked like the Nike labels, but they were yellow instead, so I could differentiate them, put the, what the sneaker was and the number, and I'd throw the samples into that box and put them into the archive. So that, you know, that was kind of like, and that was, so, so getting up to the time for the Air Force Twos, I was already years into into that hustling. So, you know, you just said you, you did your own labels and it's clear that you had this mind of different things. And that was, you said, I think like 2001, 2002, let's go to 2006. Let's go to the sneaker, the RE Mental 10s. To be honest, I was an intern at Complex. I believe we featured them in the magazine. I think my old editor, Bradley Carbone, asked to call them in because it was such a big thing at the time. But take us to, to that design, 2006, and how that came about and... You know, we'll get into to everything that happened well, after. I want to be clear, and I think this is, I, I haven't really talked about this. I did in one situation. You guys really present, uh, you know, sort of a professional end to this, to this uh, area, you know, to this enthusiasm, the, the collectors. And so this is a good place. I am a graphic designer, and I've done lots of fashion design. Um, and you know, generally nothing deep. I wasn't designing gowns and, you know, but a lot of accessory stuff, uh, I've done in retail interior design. So there's a lot of things that I've dabbled around with. I was sort of like doing my own sort of dapper Dan stuff back in the late eighties and early nineties. So, um, I understand the value of an original design and nothing. I don't think it's hard for anybody to come up with an original shoe design. One that people like and that people were willing to accept as an unknown brand and an unknown silhouette is damn near unheard of. We all know we don't wear those shoes and we're not gonna. And knowing that, it's a very tough thing to come into. So knowing that Vans copied Converse from the 50s, knowing that Nike and Adidas were just chewing up each other's designs and stealing from one another, from the Cortez on up, 
these guys were tearing, you know, the waffle, waffle razors, um, that, that, that there's been a lot of that. For me, it wasn't until I went to Japan in 2003 um, for the 10-year anniversary of BASE, and I went with uh, a bunch of cats that Pharrell flew us all out there, or Nigo flew us out there. And it was, Pharrell was sort of, I was coming in with his camp. Uh, it was with Cypher Sounds and Loic, who still okay. runs his yeah. stuff, and, uh, and Philip Leeds, who is a legacy in, in the hip-hop and, and, and music industry business who ran a lot of stuff and was uh, sort of like Pharrell's tour manager for years, Neptune's tour manager. Um, so there, there was a lot. I, when I went out there, I didn't really understand the scope of what Nigo was doing. And when I got out there and I saw the level of sophistication, regardless of whether you agree with him copying something, he wasn't designing that shoe. Mm-hmm. And I was The baster there for us. The baster. And I saw the power. He was creating value in something that people were familiar with. So if I were to create a flight bomber, a leather flight bomber, I didn't create that design. I'm only adding my idea or flavor or even just a stitch to it that is my own. And if you take sort of like, you know, the Stan Smith, every sneaker brand now, has, you know, new sneaker brand uses the Stan Smith as sort of like their base model, right? We don't really talk about that much. So I was in this position where I knew kids sneakerheads particularly. I knew artists and collectors and the types of people that I was dealing with in other areas were going to buy this. But initially, it had to be focused. It was an experiment and a case study about social commentary, about you know, designing a, 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 a statement and using something where it, it would be consumed ravenously, right? Um, and believe me, you, if people, if there's anybody who's gone to my Instagram, they've seen the airport nineties that I designed, that was originally the, the idea I wanted to do. And it just was cost prohibitive and the production of creating that, that air technology was impossible because it just would be a fake bubble window. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just a nightmare. So I knew I was like, well, do I create my own design here? I was like, it won't ha- It won't happen. I can do this later on once, you know, this has done what it needs to do. But right now I've got to use Nego's model and I need to make the statements on a familiar canvas. And since the Air Force One is is iconic and the same way that Vans took the era and the authentic, which was uh, uh, Converse was known for it, but there were other people that were using that silhouette to, to to trace where that silhouette comes from is very hard. They made it their own. And Nego showed that, um, that Nike, who was too conservative to actually do what people were asking for and demanding, wow, that colors, he would do it. Leather. Yep. He's the man that created absolute luxury value in sneakers. No one else. Now, we can go back to the Gucci's of the 80s and how that had an impact in hip-hop. And people wanted those, but they were never able to duplicate that. It was sort of a one and done. And, you know, maybe the, the, the Pradas or something like that. But really, Nego did something that had never been done. And that to me was very genius. And although I didn't necessarily like a lot of the things that Bape was producing, I never really wore any of them other than the Bapesters once or twice. Um, I understood the importance of the moment and that I, I needed to capitalize and build on that in order to, as a, I, I had been telling clients for years that you can take something that is essentially worthless, like any Nike ever that costs two or $3 to make, you, you know, they have to then add cost of marketing and 
employees and whatever their overhead is, but the actual manufacturing of a Jordan is two, three dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so literally, and the Air Force One is a two dollar shoe. Um, believe me, I know I made one. Mine was four fifty, and Bape, you know, the, the guys at Bape thought that that was astronomical because they were paying two fifty, they were paying two twenty five for the Bape, and I, I was, you know, I, mine were four fifty. They were high end version of the cheap shoe, right? Um, How much did you sell so, them for retail? Uh, I, I, I sold wholesale for me. I took a complete loss. You know, like I, I, it was no recoup for me. Um, yeah. They at retail they were two twenty five and two fifty. I think they were two twenty five at clientele and two fifty. At, or 250 or 275 at a life because they right. came with multiple things they they there was expenses there but i paid for everything other than one or two things that a life did i paid for everything including the parties and the promo and it was all out of pocket for me i, I just want to come back to that finish which was i i am i didn't design a shoe and any conversation of people and talking about bootlegs is you have to get into a much deeper conversation of how these these sneaker companies steal from one another. But more importantly is that I never designed a shoe. I designed an idea, a concept, a social statement, and I used a familiar canvas to do it. So I made a bootleg, and people bootleg bootlegs. Um, and, and I'm not doing that to cop a plea in this time. That's always been my mantra is that I know how to be a designer. I'm a, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a, an incredible designer, but I'm fairly decent. And to design a shoe with the depth and the chops that I have in the game would not be difficult for me. But I knew no one would buy an unknown silhouette from a guy who didn't have chops in sneaker game on the internet. Yeah. And so it had to be, for me, it was about the social statement. And if I was to do anything after that, that would allow it. That would give me the luxury of being able to design perhaps my own silhouette somewhere down the line and see what happens. But that was not the intent. So, you know, to answer your question that in, in depth that many people um, have not really given me the, the opportunity to do is that um, I knew what I designed. It's a replica that they call now. It's a bootleg. And it was a social statement because I had worked with Nike for years and I had worked on anti-tobacco and pro-tobacco. And I had come from a family that abused substances, including tobacco. And so, it, it, you know, there's, there's a lot of story in there, a lot of story. And it, 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 it makes people are bored with it when I even try to talk about it. You, know, you guys are probably chewing your fucking arms off right now to get away. But, no, but I know it's uh, personal. I know that your, your mother, you know, you went yeah. into detail about it, uh, that the statement came from, um, you know, her, her tobacco use. And, and, you know, to be honest, I never heard that it was a canvas. You took a canvas that is widely popular to make the statement. A lot of people would yeah. think it was the opposite, that you mm-hmm. just designed the shoe that for it to blow up. But the statement, the, the, the statement port is, um, you know, to hear you say it and to hear you tell it is very powerful. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. And it's, it, it's a hard thing for a designer um, to go and use somebody else's work, at least for me. Uh, the, the type of competition that, uh, that was sort of part of my growth and learning experience from Steve, you know, from Steve Espel Powers was that sort of like, you know, have, have some respect for who did it and, and for yourself. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm find if, if it's been done, don't do it. Yeah. And, and it's not to say that we all don't take, I mean, there's really nothing that hasn't been done. I know it's a cliche statement. Uh, and, and every good artist is influenced by other artists and it's their job to sort of pick up and build on it. Right. 
Um, and there, and you guys, you remember there were tons of bootleg Air Force Ones that were, you know, like Louis Vuitton print, and then mm-hmm. there was those yeah, guys, yep. you know, in Atlanta who had done like the the, the Atlanta at symbol. And then there was like greedy genius, and there were people yeah. that were dabbling around. It wasn't. It was big it wasn't at the a, time. It wasn't new, and it wasn't genius on my part. It was just recognizing that if I was going to create something that would be considered luxury and to have value, and that that the the depth of the concept could carry past kids, past teens, and into adults who didn't care about shoes, um, I needed I needed a really solid canvas and the air force one was the only silhouette for the job it really was the 90s 95 nothing could have done it so you have this air force one canvas and basically you infuse it with this newport logo upside down it kind of looks like a flipped swoosh you you went you went (laughs) patented the mark yourself this their spinnaker logo your own version of it you sell the shoes immediately nike sends you a cease and desist and then the tobacco company straight up sues you. How did that all happen? And how scared were you? And how much money did you end up pouring into this legal battle? It, it, I got out, I got out pretty, pretty safely, to be honest with you. The, the, the difference was, is that at this point, you got to imagine when I released the shoe, I'm 36 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm a man and I've had a, a, a company for seven years. And not only am I trained graphic designer, and I had this magazine with Steve Espo, Powers, Max, Glazer, Jimmy Wentz, uh, Kenny Mees. Um, so I, I, I understood IP issues, uh, intellectual property issues. I understood copyright and trademark. Right. I understood. You, you went and got that. You went and got, made sure you had the logo before you put the shoes out. Yes. And I, I just, I, I, I knew what was coming. To what degree? I was naive in one sense. I understood because I had worked anti-tobacco for New York State and I had worked pro-tobacco for Newport for one of their other brands, which was called Export A, which was a a Canadian brand in other countries that was trying to be introduced. And I was very conflicted about that. And because I had a company and and a partner, uh, it was sort of a voting system. And I I had to just kind of, you know, accept it. I, I, I do have standards and morals, and but there is a democracy to business. And I wasn't that this wasn't the fight for me. So I came into this understood understanding the master settlement agreement between the federal government right. and the tobacco industry. Where they so can't market I, products to kids, basically. Right. And um and, and many other things to be honest with you. There's a lot of types of advertising that they can't do. Um and I had grown up on that and I had I'd been affected by that. So I was prepared. I created a separate LLC away from my marketing company, away from anything else I had done to protect my my partner, to protect other people who had nothing to do with this project. This was just me doing me. And I didn't want them to suffer. But, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, when we did the magazine, On The Go magazine, it was, the nature of it was subversive. Everything about it was subversive. And we were constantly challenging things that way, even challenging the industry we were in that was trying to be so cool and, and, and easy. We were just breaking rules. And a lot of times it was awful. And sometimes it was really good. So I came at it with that same understanding and attitude. So when we, when I did it, um, I only, the only, the only website I talked to was kicks in the city. Okay. And, Rich and Lopez. He, Shout out to Rich yeah, Lopez. And yeah. Rich was just, I just liked him and that's all that mattered to me. There's a lot of pretense in sneakers and a lot of very condescending attitudes and dudes who are purists and don't want anything touched and, you know, they'll, they'll spend their whole lives just giving their money away to a corporation that could care whether they live or die. 
And I, I was operating sort of differently. I bought Nike stuff, but I tried to hold them, hold them accountable to me. And so in this moment, you know, I was like, I gave it to Rich. He sort of had the exclusive. I had shown it to a couple of people. And within a couple of weeks, it released. And since there was no social media other than MySpace at the time, you know, it didn't get onto Nike's radar or anybody's radar. I was safe in that moment. Um, and everything went. And it was, you know, All the shoes sold, sold out. out. People yeah, lined just, up. Oh, A-Life, boom. clientele, pairs disappeared. It was, it, it was, it was a humbling experience. I was nervous. I knew that the quality was there and I knew that certain people would want it. Um, but I didn't think, I, the question was, this is what I thought. And that I knew that I had such a resume and a, there was a pedigree to what I was bringing into this moment. And I knew that sneaker people specifically didn't know it. Mm. And I felt that if I, if it, the story had the right depth, and the right dialogue, and then if I gave it to Rich, and I gave it to A Life, who was quintessential best sneaker boutique of all time to me, so important. still to this day, and because the under the sophistication they put into that to make it like a, a gentleman smoking lounge meets you know mm-hmm. old money library is just brilliant, and it's never been topped in, in my regardless of you know what anybody thinks, they were at a pinnacle that's never been reached, and then there was. Um, there were the shops in uh, the bathing ape shops in Japan, which were just stellar. Nothing like we got from them here. It was just stellar. Bape Cafe was unparalleled. Um, and then there was clientele, and clientele was just a you know a cliche little shop full of blue collar dudes, you know, right reselling stuff. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that's my duality. You know that I really come from both of these two worlds, and I understand them. And I a life was very mad at me for giving shoes, for holding shoes for, for clientele. But I, I understood, I didn't want that kind of pretense and, and a life presented pretense, you know, they were just the, the, the top tier and half of the shoes were, you know, could have been consumed just from friends and family, right. And celebrities. And, um, and, you know, uh, clientele was me supporting the blue collar guy, the little guy, in my opinion. Um, and uh, so they sold out. And quickly, like right then, um, I got a cease and desist from Nike. It was sort of like six pages of outlining um, me trying to trademark, you know, the upside down swoosh, which is the Spinnaker logo, the, the Newport logo is called the Spinnaker logo, and putting my Ari on it and testing the waters to see what the Library of Congress would allow me to do. Um, and, uh, you know, it got close, you know, it was, it was close. And um, so they just outlined that. They never once mentioned the Air Force One silhouette. Never mentioned. They were Never nervous came about up. the swoosh. They were nervous about the confusion in the marketplace based on the swoosh. And, and these were, you know, I knew this was coming. I was infringing consciously. And I understood how ferociously brands will protect it. That was the point. If, you know, it seemed to me, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. I'm very, you know, I'm like very straightforward. You know, see it, touch it, smell it, and anything else I don't believe, you know. Um, and I and I, I sort of felt that like if Nike would vigorously enforce their their trademark, and Newport would vigorously in, in, enforce and, and protect their trademark, well, I'm an easy prey. You're going to knock me out of the way fast. What about you two? Why aren't you two having this dialogue? Because if one, if I'm Nike, the one thing I don't want is anything looking like my swoosh on some tobacco shirt. 
the and the absolute antichrist version of their mm-hmm. of their mission statement is tobacco industry, right? Sit and die, you know, and smoke and do unhealthy things. And so to me, it was just sort of a little tongue in cheek, a very a curiosity, an eyebrow raise to like, well, let's see, let's see if if the if the World Wildlife Foundation could take away the WWF's claim to that acronym and the website and who was bigger than them. They're bigger than the WWF, the World Wildlife Foundation, and and the World Wildlife Foundation won. Took it right away from them. And that was interesting to me. So, you know, to me it was just like, yeah, what if? What if, you know, I'm going to at least propose it. And I know they're not going to talk about it. And and Newport has had that logo two decades before um, Nike did. And even if Nike never knew, which I'm sure they did, I I believe it was, you know, just naive ignorance, perhaps. Um, But at some point, they had to look around and see in the 70s or in the 80s, all the promo, you know, you know, yeah. Newport was creating little miniature sneakers with the upside down swoosh on it. And they were doing that because <laughs> they knew it was going on with Nike. Hmm. So at some point, why didn't this happen? Why didn't this get yeah. served? And it was really, uh, it was really, an, uh, it was a crime of passion and opportunity. And I set it up so that I could protect myself. Uh, Nike came in, simple cease and desist. You know, I, I think, I think in some ways they probably were very entertained by it, but they could never condone such a ridiculous thing. And and I I liked that you know and I I love Nike to this day just don't have to agree with everything they do like a parent you know I don't have to like everything they do I have to agree with their business policies in every area and with Newport they can you know that their parent company Lorillard you know I, I didn't give a fuck what they were thinking you know fuck them all the way to hell you know I was just ready and uh, but what I didn't anticipate and which your you know some of your audience probably really knows is that um, that Newport was going to protect themselves against the federal government. And the first thing that they asked me or their lawyers asked me was, did you card kids for it? Did you card it? You're selling our image and promoting Uh tobacco to minors. Did you card these children? It's part of this master settlement agreement. Like I I read in the lawsuit, they said, quote, they are targeted at, among others, underage individuals and youth so that somehow your product was taking a tobacco product, which is not legally allowed to be marketed to kids and marketing it to kids and and showing them Newport and menthol and saying, this is cool. Right. Well, as they prepared their argument against me, as they prepared their documents, um, there was, you know, because there wasn't social media, there was no dialogue. So they didn't realize that it was actually anti-tobacco. They thought it was like a bootleg parody romanticizing it. And to many of the people who saw it at first and some of the people who actually bought it, they really thought it was like my homage Mm-hmm. You know, to fucking Newport. And they didn't because the story wasn't really hadn't gotten around because the Internet just didn't travel right. the way it does now. And so there were people we'll blame that were Rich really Lopez for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. just kidding, Rich. Just kidding, Rich. You know, we there, love was, you. there was a few people. And even many years later, there were people that would come up to me very angry. And I was like, you really don't know the story. Right. So yeah. you're and I think this is a perfect segue probably to where you guys want to go is that, you know, here we are now is that people, you know, people don't do their homework. They, they're knee-jerk, and they just have quick opinions. And that's great. Everybody's entitled to have a quick opinion. But, you know, I've, I've had 15 years to talk about this, and I had, you know, 10, 15 years before that to think of the idea. So um, I know what my intent was, and anyone can trivialize it and dismiss it all they want. But I can argue it, you know, from here, you know, uh, for the next 20 years, 
and I will not be wrong. And they can only disagree, but I know what my intent intentions were, and I know what it means to bootleg, and why. And my my, I'm not part of this current conversation. I'm not, but I am. Do you remember there was um, right around the same time actually, uh, Lakai did a Newport shoe yeah. for for Rob Welsh, um, you know, legendary skateboarder, and yeah. there was no conversation around that shoe at all and Lakai is not a big brand but it's a it's a brand mm -hmm. you know and mm -hmm. you think that was unfair for you no no I think everybody's got to be the sacrificial lamb right somebody I mean not everybody excuse me somebody somebody has to be the sacrificial lamb and uh and if if you're if you if you're bold enough if you are going to challenge life there's going to be times in your life you're going to have to pay that price you know whether it's physically by you know you keep jumping off of buildings at some point, the shoot ain't going to work right. You know, it's just something, <laughs> it's just what you do to live. And if you're going to make a statement, if you're going to, if you want the world to pay attention to you, you got to make noise. And you can't do that by doing things that every, the way everybody else does. And so, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't upset with Newport at all. What it was is their, their, their lawyers were out of house. They're, they're, you know, I, I don't know what you call it when it's a legal firm, but they're, they're agency of record. They're, they're, they're mm -hmm. the guys that defended them. Right. Yeah. They were in across the street from the World Trade Center, um, and uh, you know, which is no longer there. But what would have been, they were in World Trade, World Financial One, which was like a sister building, um, and so they were just in there. And when they saw this. And Newport saw it. They just saw it as, oh, my God, they're promoting to children and they're glamorizing us. And then their legal team immediately came in and thought, global conspiracy, we're going to get paid. They were going to bill their client, Newport, Lorillard, indefinitely off of this. You one. just this said you weren't a conspiracy guy. You hopped right into the global yeah. conspiracy pretty quick. <laughs> I did. I did. But it was, I mean, it ended up being factual. So it was like, yeah. it was, I didn't, at first, I, I didn't understand that. And then I sort of realized that Newport didn't really care anymore. And, you know, going on for two years, the law firm was still like hitting me up and was just like, did you find anything? Did you do Because we made a settlement where I had to buy back any shoe that dropped below $250. Fortunately for me. And, and destroy it? And no, and give it to them to destroy it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you weren't and allowed which, to talk about the shoes at all, right? And you weren't allowed I to legally own the shoes? I'm not, I wasn't legally allowed to own a photo. Wow. <laughs> a wow. JPEG on a computer. Nothing. Nothing. Wow. And it wasn't, I, you know, years later, they stopped returning my calls. And that's when I realized, I was like, okay, there's enough people that have parodied the shirts and bootlegged it. And, you know, the, the sex appeal of the most ratchet tobacco company or tobacco brand of all time um, was just making the rounds so, you know, fast that they, at this point, they couldn't even keep up with it, and the federal government wasn't chasing them. They realized that they probably went a little overboard. Um, and so they just, I think what happened is, I don't know this to be true, but my, my thinking is, is that Newport probably, Lorillard probably stopped, they were no longer retaining this law firm's mm -hmm. services anymore, and they were just like, you know, we can't bill against it, don't pick up the call. And they're and like owned by a different company now, so presumably maybe well, in that structure change. A couple of years after that, R.J. Reynolds bought them. And I think R.J. Reynolds 
you know, with a more modern sort of take on the tobacco industry and dealing with trademark infringement and the master settlement agreement, they have a different idea about this. And I just don't think they, they, they protect. I think, honestly, and this would be a conspiracy theory, I think it's like, hey, if someone's not telling them to tend to that business, they're not going to because ultimately it benefits them. Right. right. So, and I don't think that I don't think that it benefits them enough to really to care, but probably just enough to do the types of hood advertising that they're not necessarily allowed to do the same way, other than point of purchase, point of sale advertising. So, you know, I think uh, there's things that I know that Nike would do that that they were able to put on their partners to to relieve them of guilt of certain processes. So. Um, and they were able to just claim ignorance in it. And I think, I think that's the same thing with uh, the Newport brand for at this for Lorillard, not really, but for R.J. Reynolds more so. They're able to claim a certain level of ignorance. With the current, uh, as you briefly mentioned before, with the current mm-hmm. uh, situation with Warren Lotus, with the, with the Nike dunk and, and mm-hmm. altering the swoosh, and Nike, um, you know, taking legal action and wanting three times. The, the profits yeah. and for him to you know to cancel all the shoes and all that what's your take on that current situation? well um you don't get something for nothing and that's just the way it is with me um i understood what was at stake and i understood because you know again I, you know i'm a businessman you know however great one that i am uh, i just understood certain processes and more so being a designer and having that education and having had years of testing the limits of, of copyright and intellectual property. Um, I understood. So I, I protected myself in a way and I knew that profit could not happen because I would probably have to give it up. And I was able to prove that there was no profit. Not only did I not make a profit, that's a straight 50 K loss straight out the window. But you couldn't ask for better marketing, could you? No. Here we here we are, fifteen years later, right? <laughs> that's so. So that's very interesting. You knew that there wouldn't be a profit, and you know that's v- vastly different than what's currently going on. Well, there's what's happening is more reflective of of hip hop, right? And uh, I, you know, my I have a, you know, I have a very interesting background, which your audience probably knows. So. Um, but that being said, um, the hip hop mentality generally is it's, there's, it's not a team sport, right? Necessarily. And there's not fiscal education there. And I know that from my own mistakes. Right. And, um, the idea is flip, buy it, flip it, buy it, flip it, buy it, flip it. So whatever it is, got to flip that. And if you can get double your money for it, that's a good standard business practice. And if you got some, you know, if suddenly you have personal value, then you can double, triple, quadruple, you know, you can name your price, right? Um, and that's great. But what that lacks is the sophistication of understanding building a brand and brand story. And without a, without a real story, Supreme can be just a box logo to people and they can be dismissive of it because they don't understand the process of brand building. Right, the but, history. Mm-hmm. But Supreme, and this is a Supreme, I, I, I know James Jebbia, I know that team, I know people that are still working with them currently on the retail and in the office. And, um, you know, th- that story 
is deep and it has legacy and it's true to itself. And so you cannot build a brand with that level of, 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 uh, of uh, depth. And I mean, in terms of, of, you can't build that value without a story. Otherwise, you can only be a flash in the pan and go away. But when you have a story and you have that depth, you, you can go up and down in popularity mm-hmm. and in profit, but you will weather the storm because you have, you know, there, there's, there's a pedigree, there's a provenance to the product, you know, of where it's come from and why. And now you're using French words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. There you go. Um, <laughs> and it's, and it's, it's, it's important. Nike understands it. Um, uh, Ford understands it. Supreme understands that. James understands the value of being true to himself and his mission statement to his brand, and he's never deviated from it. And regardless, I've never worn Supreme, actually. Uh, really? And it's not, I, I support them, and I support the brand, I support my friends. It's just, I, I'm not a big logo on the shirt type of a guy, and that's not really my thing. Um, but and let's not I, forget, a couple years before you ever did it, Supreme did also knock off the Air Force One. They had the down yeah. one low, basically, yeah. an Air Force One with no swooshes on it. And I don't think there was yeah. ever any cease and desist from Nike on that one. Because that's where it differs. If, if the soul is different, then that differs. It's that 30% yeah. sort of window. But that doesn't Especially mean... like the branding. That doesn't mean that uh, a, Nike's pretty good, believe it or not. If you put, Nike is not vicious. Mm-hmm. They're just protecting their IP and letting you know, like, don't get out of control. And that's, I mean, they're really generous in that way. You know, I don't have to say that about them. I'm very critical of Nike, but they're very generous that way. Other brands are vicious in protecting their silhouettes. They're vicious because they have a lot more to lose because they don't have as much in terms of, you know, uh, these sort of heritage things, you know. Um, the, things that are the, already built up. Yeah. And so... I, I just don't think, I think they're more just concerned about confusion. And, and that's, that's their legal department, and it makes sense. Confusion in the marketplace is a genuine concern. No one, there's people that still have thought that, that, that the Newport, uh, I mean, that the Newport thing was some sort of, that the, that the Menthol 10 and Newport were a collaboration, like we did a collaboration. And there's people that think that this was somehow a legitimate Nike thing that then got squashed. And leaked out. There's all kinds of like lore and folklore and weird stuff about it. Um, and so that's fair. It is confusing. Nike has never allowed anybody to do what in the corporate world, uh, design world, is called logo mutilation. No, they would never have allowed anybody to turn it upside down, cut it in half, double it up, split it, turn it backwards. That is a new phenomenon. That wasn't happening in my day and before. Um, and no company does it now. Companies realize that people still recognize their logo and like to see things happen with it. So uh, anyways, you know, there was there was that moment where, um, you know, I knew and I don't think that when we're, you know, fast forward to the question that you asked me, um, mm-hmm. that if, if you just do a few things, for instance, the customizers for now have been very left alone because yes. it's because it's the same thing as taking a BMW and then taking to the aftermarket shop and getting new rims put on and a spoiler. It's still a BMW, but what is BMW going to do? Go after aftermarket people? That's, that's ridiculous. These people are enhancing their core product. Regardless of whether they, yeah, whether they endorse it or not, they don't, but they say, Hey, this is enthusiasts need to do things. And that's what the customization thing is. Now replicas, as, as it's just straight bootleg, is a bootleg, and that's of concern to any corporation, no matter what it is. 
whether you agree with it or not, it's not up to me. I don't, you know, I'm indifferent to it. I think mm-hmm. Nike, Nike has, you know, billions and billions of dollars. It, none of this bootlegging hurts their bottom line, anything drastically, and their shareholders are probably not suffering. Um, I think this anything guy, Warren that. Lotus, a lot of people thought that the reason he got in legal trouble with Nike, so Nike is suing him, is because that he started making too much money off it. So he has these bootleg-looking dunks, and he's altered the swoosh a little bit to look like a, a kind of sharper, and there's just Jason Mask motif on it. And what do you recommend he do in this situation? Do you have any advice for this young designer who's about to be in a lot of legal trouble with Nike? Just cease and desist and settle quick. Yeah, you yeah just quick. get out of there. Don't There's fight. It. fight. He said on social he, media he wants to fight it. He has no. He has no chance. He has no chance. Not one. No chance. There's not one chance. Um, I, I want him to fight it. If he's got, mm-hmm. if he's got, if he's got, uh, you know, somebody behind him that's willing to spend the money, he should fight it. Mm-hmm. It's just good mm-hmm. for his. It's good for his brand and good for his name. Um, and but Nike will win this battle. And all, what he can do at that point is then move on to a, a Bapester style thing and maybe start creating his own retail or something and be able to just do parody stuff uh, and, and build his own brand in the process. So, I mean, I think he knows that and that's where this is going. Um, but uh, in terms of the argument, there's no argument to be had. And I don't believe that it's because he made money. Well, I mean, we're talking about I, I, that's a knee jerk response from the sneaker okay. community. That's people okay. who just want to believe that everything is about money. That, you know, there's people that believe that the Air Force One is the foundation of Nike's money-making. That's the, the, the Air Force One is like a flea, like a tick on their butt. Mm-hmm. They don't make any money from the Air Force One. That's like, it's, 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 you know, they're making money from dad shoes that are sold at places yeah, like Mojo. Yeah, it's 270s and, and yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. They, they they literally make the bulk of their money off of like you know cheap sweatsuits and things like that. They're not. This is not the the Jordan brand is huge, but it's Team Jordan that makes them the money. It's not these hyper strikes and quick strikes and you know collaborations and stuff like that. That's marketing, and they generally lose money on those things because there's so much that goes into it. They take an L. You guys know this, but I'm talking to you. Yeah, audience, right? giant um, uh, demand creation budget, three billion dollars right. or so. It's just they understand that all these little parts make up for a shockwave that eventually ends out in the suburbs in the working class and, and middle class world and gets people to just keep buying those, you know, like you said, 270s, which I actually like, um, you know, <laughs> people hate them, but I like them because they're a little weird. Mm-hmm. I don't own any for the record. But um, and, and so in, in this situation, um, there's, you know, he can't protect it. What he can do is continue to do variations of it where he creates his, his own, you know, aspects to it. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get too deep on it, but. You don't um, want to give him any free ideas. I mean, he, I think he knows, but I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to give everybody out there. Uh, it, it's not, it's not an idea. It's just, I don't want to send people down a path. They're like, Oh, that's what I should do. Look, if you don't have good ideas and you don't have a good reputation, it, like, you can make some money, but you know, you just, you know, it's not as simple as people think it is. And if I didn't have the resume and the pedigree, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I, my brand story was there. And I think this gentleman is creating his brand story, but with this moment, right. but it's going to be one and done. And, you know, it, it, I, 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 here, here's the statement to the, the overall, everybody getting out there, push it, do it. If it's a bootleg, do it. Do it. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, yeah, just do it. <laughs> 
just do it. Just do it. Because Sounds familiar, it's, Ari. It's never going to hurt them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's never going to hurt them. Um, and they probably need the entertainment. But more importantly, it's, I'm not doing it because I think that, you know, uh, to be, uh, that they, people should attack Nike. I love Nike and I still buy, buy Nike products. Um, I think people should do it because out of this, maybe some new brands will be born. And that's important. It's important because for the longest time, we only had ABC, NBC, and CBS. Mm. And then Fox came in, regrettably, and has, <laughs> um, and has really changed the game. They created a network that opened up more blue-collar sort of programming, black programming and white blue-collar programming, and, and challenged sort of the status quo of the, of the three big boys. And... Now the internet has come and we have streaming. So now people can get their entertainment from, you know, from Prime and, and, and Netflix and all these different places. Now we have many players in the content creation game for advertising dollars. And I think that the sneaker world is still archaic in that way, that it's still about one big player. And then there's a couple secondary players of Adidas and maybe Reebok and, you know, Puma kind of, tertiary in, in, in the argument. Um, and we need more. And the only way that's going to happen is it's not, it, it, it's going to happen when someone does something disruptive, challenges the status quo, has some kind of resume to do so, and then the missing element, athlete endorsement. Got it. So if, this, if someone can come up with a good silhouette and a good partnership, you can now go to the guy right now who's about to enter the NBA and make him a partner, and it's off and running. So long as you've got a good product, it can't be, you know, the the, the what's the, the you know the, the ball sneaker or any Big of ball. those. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. Or what was that? What was his name from um, uh, Marbury when he did the nineteen ninety nine cent? You know. Uh, Good idea, just ahead of its time, I think. Unfortunately, Ari, when you saw when you saw Jeff Staple get involved, did that surprise you that he had done the Nike projects and then you know co-signed the essentially bootleg? I, th- I no, I don't. I, it, did it surprise me? Um, I don't really know what to think about that. I I, I respect Jeff, and mm-hmm. Jeff has skin in the game like few people do you know in every direction right. of design and uh, uh, uh streetwear and you know these long before these things even had cultures and titles um and so jeff jeff has been probably pretty conservative compared to some other people compared to amigo but also very controversial compared to you know it, it, his own partners of of like nike and stuff right so jeff is a really a good example of you know Moving through a space over time. Yeah, I think so. And so at this point, obviously, he wasn't creating new things with Nike. And I think he probably, you know, I don't really don't know what Jeff is thinking, but I would think that he was encouraging young creatives, you know, yeah. and I and I think that he understands that. And, and I, I can't speak for Jeff, but I would encourage young creatives. I'm not encouraging somebody to go and knock off, you know, the menthol tens because uh, for for. And it's been done many times, but I try, I, I try to discourage it and talk about it and say, listen, don't cheapen the message by just wanting to give people their version of a Newport cigarette to wear. That's not what this was about. And I'm not 
Nike. So don't, I only have, and when it comes to sneakers, this is what I have. You know, this is my legacy. Don't dirty my legacy. You know, it's just not, and it's not hypocritical. I'm a bootlegger, right? Mm -hmm. Essentially, you know, if we're going to call it what it is, I made, I I, I bootlegged something in order to do something else. Um, And so I don't want people to think that I'm hypocritical. I'm just saying, please, this message, this anti-tobacco message, this corporate corporate responsibility message, this understanding that people need to challenge IT, uh, intellectual property and, and, and uh, copyright is important. And by you guys going out there and just doing that because it's cool and it's crazy mm-hmm. and you want to have your, your version of the legacy is not okay. If you, you know, I don't mind customization and the bootlegs are out there. They exist. Um, there's people getting robbed in China as we speak. Uh, I've seen it. Uh, uh, so it's out there, but it's, you know, I'm just trying to keep the integrity of the message as long as I can. And, you know, there's a lot of really bad bootlegs out there of it. Um, and then there's some good things that have happened. And, and you know, I applaud those guys who had the discipline to just make a few shoes and leave it at that. But, you know, I can't, again, I don't want to be hypocritical. I'm just trying to protect not my interest because I never made any money. I lost money on it. I'm trying to protect the legacy of the menthol 10 as a story because, I'm not. The menthol tent is much bigger than me. That's for damn sure. And to that point, I think a good way to cap it off, I, you know, I, we shoot with Lil Yachty a lot. And I remember that the menthol tens was one of his grails. And he's like a really serious collector. To, so to see someone of a younger generation um, and the shoe still to hold up is, you know, it, it's a testament to the staying power of the shoe. And, you know, as far as this podcast, I think um, you were so Great to get your insight on this, and really, definitely, yeah, definitely someone who has a lot of history in, in those New York City days. And I remember, yeah, when I when I was an intern, I I remember you as a figure running around downtown. So it really, was, yeah, I re, yeah, I started at Complex like two thousand five, two thousand six. So it was right around the time that oh yeah, yeah, you were you were I like was probably um, up in Complex at that time, running yeah, around, definitely, you know, talking to people. You yes. know, my my man James Ling. Oh, James, ahead, of course. Yes, yes, James Ling. So, uh, Ari, it was great to talk to you and reconnect with you. And, um, yeah, thank you for giving us your time. And let me give you your flowers. Thank you, gents, for giving me the platform and entertaining this nonsense. And, <laughs> Definitely not and quite nonsense. honestly, um, and, and, and for doing what you do, you know. I mean, that sounds kind of cliche, but I, I, I appreciate what you guys do. And, um, and thank you for you know thinking that I'm somebody that should be part of the conversation. It's it's very gracious of you. Sorry, I appreciate it. Absolutely, and not nonsense at all. I think we're so happy to have this conversation and to have differing viewpoints or people who are ready to challenge brands or challenge these traditional ideas of IP or how how we should feel about being marketed to. And also, we have to thank the person who made this all possible, a friend to all of us, Sarah Honda. Yes, thank you so much, Sarah. Sarah. Honda. In, your, in your infinite grace, we, we may have to just go for another hour talking about how great Sarah Honda is, a complex employee, a person Thank who's you, done Sarah, everything in the industry. I love you. You've been an asset to everything that I've ever done in hip hop. We all love and, you. Yes. And uh, thanks for bringing me together with these gents and, and this conversation. You're, you're, you're a rare one. And you're, your story in, in history will be written. It love will it. be. All right. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. 
Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Have a good night. Our producer is Dave Matthews. Our associate producer is Jasmine Plata. Sound engineering done by William Smith. Special thanks to Jennifer Stewart and Shiva Bayet. The Complex Sneakers Podcast is a production of the Complex Podcast Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.